listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and together with a selection of co-hosts from around the world, we discuss the ways in which people and communities connect with research and science. We hear from patients and survivors, health workers, policymakers, scientists, and implementing research organizations about the methods and approaches that they apply to co-produce knowledge to address current global health challenges. Thank you for listening, and on to this week's episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome back, or welcome for the first time, to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's podcast series will be exploring mental well-being amongst people affected by chronic health conditions. We will be hearing about examples from neglected tropical disease research, or NTDs. These are a set of communicable diseases that affect the poorest and the most marginalized, and on top of that, receive limited resources in comparison to other diseases like TB or HIV, for example, hence their term of being neglected. As NTDs affect the most vulnerable, they are often described as a tracer to track health equity. We will be hearing a little bit more about that. Throughout this series, we will be talking about how different stakeholders from the NTD community and other chronic conditions work together with communities and people who have lived experience of chronic conditions so we can better understand their health issues. As always, I have a wonderful co-host with me this month, Dr. Tosin Adeke. How are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, Kim. I'm fine. Thank you very much. And it's good to be here. I have a PhD in psychology and I work with the Department of Mental Health here in Northern Nigeria, the Amadou University Teaching Hospital. I've also worked primarily research in participatory research, particularly among uh, people who suffer from neglected tropical diseases. Most recently, I also work with the Institute for Development Studies, where we're developing a well-being tool for children and parents with disability. And it's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tosin. It sounds like you have a wealth of experience. And I can imagine working with children is quite challenging and very interesting as well. So hopefully we'll get to hear about that at some point. So our episode guests today are Dr. Julian Eaton, who is a public health psychiatrist an assistant professor at the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Health. He is also the medical health director for the NGO CBM Global. We also have Dr. Rujema Lawrence, who is a public health professional at the University of Rwanda, a collaborator with the Brighton Sussex Medical School, which is an NIHR-funded global research unit on neglected tropical diseases, And most of his work has been on mental health. So welcome both to our guests. Julian, let's start with you. How are you today? Hi, Kim. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Um, It's it's good to be starting to see the world again. I suppose that's the best way to think about it for me. I feel like we're emerging from the COVID period, which was frustrating for those of us who work in international health. And I've just started visiting some of the countries where we work. And that's really always encouraging to see the great work that people are doing in different parts of the world. Thank you very much. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Um, Dr. Lawrence, welcome. How are you today? And what is your area of interest when engaging with communities? I know that whatever we do is beat research or beat any other intervention is for the well-being of the community. So I think whatever we do, if it is in the best interest of the community, that's why I always want to work with the community, to engage with them so that they, they can have a say in what we say and they, they can, whatever we change, it can be based on their interests. Thank you very much. So about inclusion of voice and to make sure that our research meets their needs. I think that's a, a very good summary. 
So just moving back to you, Julian, I think there was quite a lot of technical language already in the introduction. So I wonder if you could start by helping us and our listeners out to understand what exactly is meant by chronic conditions. Maybe you could give us some examples of NTDs or neglected tropical diseases. And how does this all fit with mental well-being? Thanks. I think the, the key word in all of that is chronic. And um, it's funny, we use these terms in very different ways sometimes within kind of health spaces and in, in the general population. Chronic basically means long term. So we're talking about people who have conditions that last for a very long time, unlike some infections where you can have a condition, receive an antibiotic or something, and it's over, it's finished. But these are conditions that people tend to have to live with for a very long time. So sometimes there are infections like HIV or TB that go on for a very long time. A lot of them are within the realm of non-communicable diseases, so another acronym, NCDs, which is things like diabetes or respiratory conditions where people have to learn to live in a different way because of a condition that's not going to go away. Often neglected tropical diseases, which is the focus of a lot of the work that the three of us here do, last for a very long time. They're almost all infectious diseases, but they tend to affect people in a way that makes causes a permanent impairment or a long-term disability. Therefore, they often fit into this category of chronic diseases. The reason why this quite diverse range of conditions are put together is because you have to think about them in a slightly different way when you're looking at how to support people that it affects people in their very social parts of their lives, as well as the treatments they receive, but also they often need to keep coming back to receive services. It often affects them in terms of poverty and ability to earn a living, for example. And often, actually, there's a kind of common impact on people's well-being. I know that we're going to talk about well-being in a second, but having to live with a condition for a very long time that might be painful or debilitating in some way really does have an emotional impact, which is why this podcast is so important for us to put those two things together and how how we can, as as service providers and researchers, think more carefully about this particular group of people and how we can think about supporting their well-being. Thank you very much. That certainly helped me understand that. And for our listeners, the last series we had was on non-communicable diseases. So to hear a little bit more about that, do listen to our previous episodes. So Julian, thank you for that. It's it's looking beyond the medical is what I'm hearing a little bit here to the social factors. And I really like the terminology of bringing emotion into our thinking when we provide health services. So Lawrence, thinking about emotion and and dealing with kind of the impact of long-term conditions, what do we mean by well-being? Thank you, Kim. Mental well-being is the set of mental health that enables somebody to cope with the daily stresses of life, for somebody to realize their abilities and to enable them to contribute to their communities. To me, that's the understanding of what it means by mental well-being. I think Lawrence has covered it really well. I think the important thing to recognize really is that none of us live in isolation and our well-being is entirely dependent on the people around us and the society we live in. And I think that's what has the biggest impact on it. So often we tend to think of well-being as something that's about an individual's status, how they feel about their life, are they living life well? But actually, you cannot separate that from the environment in which they live. And that's often the target of our interventions, both individuals and also the environment in which they live. I may continue and say, why is it important to consider in patients with clinical conditions? We know that from such evidence that clinical conditions exposes patients to the risk of depression, and depression is one of the mental disorders. 
There is also evidence to suggest that treating depression and the chronic conditions go together. If they are put together, people who are suffering from them can bet, better be treated and uh, it's better that they can be managed together because chronic conditions expose people from depression. And if they are put together, I think they, it's better off managed. I think that's really important. It's recognizing and treating both of these kind of individual social and environmental factors. For our listeners, Dr. Lawrence, could you possibly tell us a bit about Rwanda? So paint a picture of what a patient with chronic condition who might have depression and some of the challenges or opportunities that might exist within your context. The challenges or opportunities within our context are at the backdrop of the, our history here in Rwanda is that we had the, the terrible genocide here. And therefore, you'd expect that there are a lot of people with the mental disorders. The setting would be that when you have mental issues and the chronic condition, it should be that they are integrated. These days, we see increased availability of palliative care for chronic conditions. Family members have a very big role to play in terms of emotional support for people with the, uh, chronic conditions. And this is complemented by psychological support from healthcare providers. But specifically in the Rwandan case, you would find that you find somebody with a chronic condition and does not have a relative offer that emotional support because maybe all the family members were killed. So there is no person to do the care for that person. So that's the context. We find that some because of the uh, we have a system of community health workers, and some community health workers can identify some of those people, and they, in one or the other, offer that support instead of the, the relatives where they are missing. But you find that it's not sufficient because um, emotional support is better offered by a family member. Thank you very much. I, I really think that helps to understand the context. Um, and it also shows that you need to understand the history and the political context of a country when thinking about treatment and conditions and the availability of family as a support network. Julian, do you have any experience from other contexts in relation to mental health and chronic conditions and why it's important to consider context? I've worked mainly in Africa as well, and I've just finished a research study in um, the southeast of Nigeria, really looking at the way that people, particularly who have leprosy and who have lymphatic filariasis, which often causes very large limbs, which can be very um, debilitating, um, have been able to or not been able to see emotional support as part of what they're given by government. And what we really found was that they, those two are often siloed. So for them, they want to see access to the kind of physical care and support they have been able to access at the same time as a recognition that the environment they live in is really stressful for them. That actually stigma, which is a word that we use quite a lot, but it's, it's a very impactful thing on people who want to be a part of their community and yet they're often restricted from being able to do so because of something that is entirely incidental. It doesn't define them, but they find that it defines them. So that, that environment, the broader context of attitudes that tend to put people in boxes based on a, a, on a physical condition, especially this kind of skin NTDs that, that Tosin was talking about working with earlier, because they're particularly stigmatizing. People particularly label people in this way and they're not allowed to participate in society as other people would to marry and to have a job and all the things that we all find important and are very important for our well-being 
so but you know that was our, our experience there really was that people appreciated the physical support that traditionally has been prioritized for them people have seen that they need you know health support that's fine but what about all the other things that they they also really value to have a good life and to have well-being uh, and those kind of contextual broader factors often aren't seen as important within healthcare services and i think that's probably what needs to change Thank you very much. It sounds very complex and I think possibly requires a systems thinking approach. So really looking holistically. So I'm going to hand over to Dr. Tosin now to carry on the conversation. Over to you. Thank you, Kim. We're having quite an interesting conversation here. And I'll just come back to Julian based on the last comment that you made about a lot of stigma, a lot of discrimination, exclusion and distress. Incidentally, WHO has this publication in the year 2020 on the person-centered approach. And I would like you to just help our viewers looking at what people-centered health services are and what would be the potential considerations when trying to achieve them, particularly in relationship to mental health. Yeah, thank, thanks, Tosin. Um, the, the idea of people-centred services really came about because it was recognised the way that historically we've set up health services for the convenience of the people providing health services. So the patients or people with health problems are seen almost as incidental. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, there was the siloing of you go there for one particular problem and here for another problem. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. obviously that reduces how easy it is for people to be able to access a range of services if they don't just have one problem. It took a surprisingly long time for health service planners to realise that this was an issue, actually, because people are complex, they have multiple needs, um, and it's not convenient for them to have to fight very hard to have all of their different needs assessed. So the idea is really to switch that around and say, How can we think about providing health services in a way that's convenient for the people themselves, recognising them as a whole being, having maybe a range of physical needs, also having emotional and mental health needs and actually often social needs as well. So that that was the logic of it, really, of saying, let's think about the person at the middle of this and how they can conveniently access uh, different types of care together. But I actually think it's more profound than that because we've always actually assumed as professionals and as as people planning services that we know what people want and actually often when you ask them what they want we get quite surprising answers so this is a a revolutionary approach and I was actually really pleased when I heard what because we'd been working together on this WHO document and when they decided to really focus on that person-centered approach as the title I thought that's a brilliant demonstration really of the way that we are turning around the way we think about support for people with NTDs because it is about recognizing them and their priorities as important and that then asks the question do we really know what they want how do we find out what they want and what their communities want the question now I would want you to share with our viewers about is a lot of us have been trained with the power of this is my area of specialty in mental health Mm. Now you come to me and then I tell you this is how to do it. Now we're shifting to say, what do people want? And then to be able to provide services based on what people want. How easy has it been in your experience and based on your research for professionals to really engage with this shift, specifically looking at the participatory approach to communities and to those who would access services? 
To be honest with you, I think it's one of our biggest challenges. Yeah. Uh, professionals are not different from the community around. And if you're mm. talking particularly about stigmatized conditions like mental health problems or the kind of NTDs that, that you and I work around, they often reflect that same stigma. And that often means that the people who are relatively marginalized and not empowered in that society are given even less chance to ask questions or to be given the right amount of information about decisions being taken on their behalf. So I think often professionals reflect the same kind of patronizing attitudes and stigmatizing attitudes as other people. And the problem is it, that power is reinforced by patients in this relationship often saying that and communicating that as well. You're the expert. Tell me what. And I think it's going to be a journey that we have to go on to make the basic point that the most expert in the room about their own condition is that person. And actually, that's more true of the chronic conditions that we're talking about in this podcast than of short-term conditions. Because if I had a big medical problem that had just come on, I would want an expert to tell me what's going on and to sort it out. If I've lived with diabetes or with the long-term impacts of leprosy for the last 30 or 40 years, I know far more about my situation. And I probably know more about the medical side of it as well, actually, than the person sitting in front of me who's only known me for five minutes. And I think that message needs to be conveyed. And I think it is changing. It's got to be part of training. It's got to be part of attitudinal change. But quite a lot of our stigma work actually is directed towards professionals. It's, a, it's quite an important target group, especially if you can get people early in their training, as well as attitudes of the populations. I think basically we all always assume that because a professional had been trained over time, they, it's assumed that their attitudes have changed. And it, it really doesn't work like that. One key thing that you have mentioned is that the professionals are also a part of this community. So many times, some of that stigma, some of that discrimination may be laced around our knowledge. And the key also that you have brought out is the fact that there's a difference between somebody who has had a condition just come upon them immediately and one who has lived what we would refer to as a chronic condition. Lawrence, based on your work in Rwanda, would you be able to share with us how communities and people have been involved in tackling these issues, specifically stigma, discrimination, accessing mental and um, social health care? And have we gone any farther? What needs to be done? Thank you, Dr. Decay, for that question. I think our entry point in Rwanda has been through community health workers. Community health workers stay in the communities. So when designing either health strategic plans, the community health workers have a role to play in what goes into that. So they do participate. They pro provide the treatment for malaria, for family planning and maternal and care. They also do a lot of work around that. So when we are talking about strategic plans, they are part and parcel of that planning. That's not to say that is all we need to involve communities. We have community outreach, which we call integrated community outreach. We send medical students to communities to identify problems in the communities as part of their internship so that when they go to train, they see the problems in the community. But of late, we had evaluation of how that approach or that outreach works. And what we did, we went to the community and we asked them about that program and we asked them to tell us what we should change in that outreach program. 
And as part of evaluation of that program, we were asking the people in the community to tell us what they think health or well-being is. And you find that somebody will tell you, to me, health and well-being means having health insurance. Another one will tell you health and well-being means, for me, having having a balanced diet. The other one will tell you it means for me having security. So meaning that what we classically understand as health and well-being the community members, the opinion would be different. And for us, that is also important for us to know. And when we have all that information, then we can best know how to engage them and how best they can participate in designing programs that are geared towards tackling their daily health problems. So from the run perspective, those are some of the key things that I can share with you in relation to community engagement. Just a quick follow-up on that question. You and I, obviously, are Africans. And you've said something that is very critical about health and well-being and going to the communities to ask what they think health and well-being is. Now, let's just, let's look at it maybe contextually. Is there a difference? And if there is, what are, what is the difference between the definition of health and well-being for somebody in an urban community, for example, highly urban, probably in a place like Kigali, and for someone who is right there in the rural areas. Is there a difference? Why is that difference? And how can we pull all of that together to better engage people within these communities? Yes, there's a difference because the difference is brought in based on their daily challenges. They don't experience the same challenges. Mm. So somebody in the rural areas probably might find walks more kilometers to the health center more, longer than somebody from the urban area. So th- their challenges are different and their understandings are not the same. But the, the reason why for us we wanted to know what they understand by that is that if you are going to design an awareness raising campaign or behavior change programs, yeah. It is important for you to know what people understand by certain concept so that you don't address, you don't prescribe the wrong thing to it. So you need to understand the concept around certain concepts so that when you come up with awareness raising, if you are telling people, please wash before to avoid it, for example, COVID, there was this mass awareness raising for people to shower before, don't greet. We needed to understand all those concepts so that when we design a program that are geared towards behavior change, we know what people's understand by certain concepts. I think you've brought in something very important and that's culture. Now, you mentioned COVID, and I remember that here in Nigeria, we had a challenge. Initially, when you have behavior change programs and you come and say, oh, don't hug, don't greet, don't shake. Now, some of our social context, if you didn't hug somebody, it meant you had something against that person. So for a lot of them, this is a culture that I have always known. And then there's the mindset of we're all going to die or something. Anyway, why is this now suddenly going to change our sociocultural mindset? That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have people who are grappling with poverty. And if somebody says, I'm hungry. It's not about a disease that is going to kill me. I'm going to die of hunger anyway. So I think you brought out something that is very critical. When we roll out a lot of these health programs, it's important to engage communities because what we consider as priority may not be what the community considers as priority. And that would affect the uptake of whatever we're doing in the long run. To come back to how 
care for chronic health conditions, how we can link the mental health services with chronic health conditions. Yeah, thanks, Tosin. I really like the way that Lawrence talked about that, having to do it on so many different levels, because we've tended to work in isolation in health. And what this is all about is linking together the different things that people themselves have said is important and attitudes and economy and all of those things are really important as well. As I said, we've often worked historically in isolation and that's the revolution that needs to happen is bringing together in a logical way, the way that any individual can access a range of services in a way that's not off-putting for them, that's not expensive because they have to pay five different providers, that doesn't take time because they have to travel to three different cities, that is, is really very convenient for them. And often, actually, many of the different chronic diseases that we think about, whether it's HIV or non-communicable diseases or neglected tropical diseases, they're very similar kinds of patterns of use because of the fact of them being long term. So, you know, what you really need is a place that someone can go that's quite local for them. So integrating all this into primary care, ideally, maybe into secondary care if necessary. Seeing someone who's able to really provide for their basic needs doesn't have to be a professor. It needs to be someone who knows how to deal with what they're coming to there. And really that task shifting towards having the person in primary care able to provide a good basic level of sensible care is the revolution that needs to happen. And that's really the journey we've taken in global mental health. And a lot of that learning about bringing good quality basic care to people where they are can really be applied very well to that integration into support for people with chronic diseases. So I'm really very excited about where we are now because I think the policies that have been put in place based on some really good evidence now of having essential care packages for what should be delivered at that primary care level, of having a good integration at a kind of regional or even national policy or a new master plan for neglected tropical diseases say, let's also think about well-being. Let's devote a certain proportion of the budget towards well-being. Let's make sure that all the frontline workers understand how to be empathic and thoughtful and ask the question, how are you feeling today? All those changes in the way we're thinking are really now supported by good evidence-based, the person-centered care approach document you talked about, but also the roadmap for NTDs, the global roadmap has absolutely shifted towards thinking about whole person rather than just eradicating these conditions or treating people's physical needs immediately. There are really good guidelines for doing that now. And it's all about bringing comprehensive support to people where they are. It doesn't have to be flashy. doesn't have to be delivered by professors. It needs to be done competently by the people they meet when they go to a primary care centre. Yes, thank you very much, Julian. I think one point that I have that I'm going away with is particularly the fact that it doesn't have to be delivered. It doesn't have to be complicated because I remember that my first entrance into particularly chronic diseases while I was presenting my work at PhD to work with patients who had been living with glaucoma. I was met with this initial resistance. What are you going to do there? How are you going to work there? Psychology has no relationship with all this. And earlier on, you had said it's that patience at getting people to come gradually to that understanding and to see particularly from training right from the beginning of their training the importance of how all these work together but i'll just ask another quick question there's this thing 
about the politics of the delivery of health services. There's this rivalry amongst professionals. This is my patient. This is my case. When I'm done with mine, I'll send him to you. And I think that creates a disjointing so that the services are not presented together. It's not convenient. It's not looking at the beneficiary and saying, instead of asking him to come back in two weeks' time, we can co-deliver so he gets it at the same time at less cost and it's convenient for him. How do we walk around these political rivalries? I think demonstrating it's a win-win. I think Mm. a lot of these rivalries come because people feel like they're in competition for resources, partly. Or within a hospital, there's a limited amount of space or whatever. Actually, what we know, there's very strong evidence to show that if you address the emotional needs, especially of people with chronic conditions, they're much more likely to do well in their health as well, their physical health as well. So the best evidence is really about people taking complex long-term drug regimes like HIV or TB. If, if someone has depression that's not addressed, they feel really low, they're a bit hopeless about their future, they're much less likely to take nine months worth of complex drugs. Whereas actually, if they're feeling positive on top of things, have had it well explained to them, they feel agency and, and in control, then the person who cares mainly about whether they take their pills every day is also a winner. So I think it's communicating that it's a, it's a win-win and not a competition. And I think mental health care is a little bit different from some of the other subspecialties where you might need to see a different person for two different physical health problems. Mental health care is good communication and empathy and actually saying the right supportive things. You don't usually need to refer to a mental health specialist. Now, if you've got a counsellor in the team, that's really great. But actually, every healthcare professional should be good at this stuff. It's not something you refer someone else for good communication and empathy. You should be doing that as a competent health professional. And I think we should be making doctors and nurses proud of being a good communicator and of being an empathic listener and someone who's able to communicate well, even what the medication is for and what side effects someone might get. If you don't do that, they'll stop taking the medicines because they have a problem they weren't expecting the day after they walked out your clinic and you won't see them for another year. That's a failure of your profession. And you need to be a good communicator to to do your profession well, I think. Okay, thank you very much, Julian, for that. I I put in that question because some of our listeners may be people who are involved in training mental health professionals. I have taught medical students for so many years now. And one thing that you have said that comes out all the time is communication, empathy, and all of that helps. You find patients wanting to, oh, I prefer this person. If that person is not on duty, I'm not going to see any other person. And it's primarily because of the kind of communication. So Lawrence, I'll come back to you very quickly and just share your experience, particularly in Africa with regards to these issues relating to professionals and the challenge of rivalry among professionals. Uh, thank you, Dr. Deke. In addition to what Dr. Julian has said, I will say that we need to do more advocacy to, to mobilize around political will. So I've realized where there is political will, also resources are allocated around that. And uh, you can have more cohesion and then you can have more integration. So where there is political will and the resources put for that, I think that can be one of the solutions to, to silos. Okay. Thank you very much. So I hand over back to Kim now uh, for the wrap up. Thanks very much. What a delightful conversation this has been. I have learned so much. So in 30 seconds, starting with you, Lawrence, tell me, 
What advice would you give to researchers and scientists so that they can better connect with people and communities? Thank you, Dr. Kim. Uh, the best way that people being researched, they can connect, uh, connect with the communities. One of the ways is that during the process of treating people with the chronic conditions, when you are treating patients, they have caregivers, they are relatives. I think as researchers, we need to get a lot of the perspectives of people who are giving care to those people, who are giving the emotional support. There's a lot we can learn from them. So I think uh, as we labor to engage more the community, those are the people we can begin with to speak to. Thank you very much. They have a lot of experience in those people they are supporting and they have a lot of challenges and through those challenges and what they experience while they're giving care, we can learn a lot on how to redesign the care for those people. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think that links very well to your point at the beginning of uh, family members and uh, thinking extensively who is given that care. Julian, same final question to you, please. I would really just build on what, what Lawrence said, that this doesn't happen naturally. People have been disempowered. They haven't been asked historically. And if we're going to do a better job, we need to consciously build into how we do things, asking, empowering people. When you're setting up a new service, make sure you sit down with people affected and their families and ask them what they want rather than assume make sure that if there's a if there's a monitoring or evaluation process that they're part of the voice that comes in and has done it so without structuring a real effort to give space for this voice and then make sure you're accountable and say we're going to do something about what they say even if it's inconvenient it won't change so it's not enough just to think it's a good idea how are you practically going to make a difference on the basis of what people actually say thank you very much really important point that's a wonderful place to end this episode Thank you to our guests for an amazing conversation and our new co-host. And finally, thanks to all our listeners. Please do like, share, rate, and subscribe. The voices that we've heard today and the voices of all our episodes need to be heard. And by you liking, sharing, and subscribing, we can continue to do that. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.